Well, good morning, and welcome to everybody watching online from home. We're so glad you could join us. If you are watching online, we invite you to uh, hit that like and subscribe button and see if we can't spread the message around. And if you are watching online, there's a, a link down there in the, the doobly-doo, the, the, the comments, not the comments, the, uh, the description box, where, uh, where you can find our online e-letter e and find out what's going on in our church and find the sign up so you can come join us in person next week. We'd love to have you. It is so great to have people back in the house of God. Can I get an amen for that? I am so happy to be here and I am just thrilled that it's communion week. Like that just worked out so well because communion just means so much to me in particular. I don't know about you but I love that this is this thing that we gather together as Christians around the world and we come together and we get to do it today because we're finally back together in person and I'm so happy about that. So if you are watching online, I really encourage you, find some elements so you can join in with us. You can use anything. It doesn't have to be grape juice or wine. It can be, it can be water. I'm not worried. It can be water and a cookie, but find something. We are in the fourth week of our Lenten journey in our series called Marked, where we're using the Gospel of Mark as our guide. And just before we get in, let's say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord, we've already raised our voices in celebration that we could join together today. But once again, we want to just thank you that we could come together. We pray, Lord, that you would open your word to us that you would be so alive and so present. We thank you that you're here, even when we can't see you, even when we can't feel you. We know your presence, God. Thank you for our time. Amen. So this week we are talking about chapters 7 and 8 in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, we're really focusing in on chapter 8. And this week is a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. And in Mark chapter 8, verses 29 to 30, we find Peter's declaration of Jesus as the Messiah. And this point in particular is the turning point of the gospel. From here, Jesus turns from declaring the good news to primarily being focused on the cross. He makes predictions of his death in chapters 8 and 9 and 10, and we begin to see a real shift in the focus toward Jesus' impending sacrifice and the escalating conflict with the religious leaders. But Enough about literary structure and overarching narratives. Let's look at this week's lesson. So, I hope you've all got your grown-up pants on. Even those of you watching from home, we're going to wrestle with the scripture a little bit today. I'm afraid that this is not a week of easy answers. We live in a world that likes to be told a simple answer. We like to know, to believe, that some people are good. Some people are bad. That this is the way to act and not that way. Or that, that this political party are the saviors and that these are the ones trying to destroy the country. Our world likes these easy answers. These last few weeks, my wife and I have been engaged in a lot of reflecting and reworking of our finances. We want to be responsible stewards of what God has given us and we want to provide for our children we want to give to the causes that we believe in and support the work of God's church. We want to be able to provide for a retirement someday and maybe go on a trip on a different someday, hopefully a someday that's sooner, when we're allowed to travel again. But one of the things that happens when you start researching financial advice 
is that a lot of what you find online, it's, it's not bad advice. It's just, it's simplistic. They're wanting to make the advice really easy, right? They want to make it easy to follow, so they just give a straight rule. Like, like debt is bad. Don't have a credit card. Don't borrow money to buy a car. If you can avoid it, even avoid getting a mortgage, though I have no idea how that's supposed to be feasible. And of course, real life is more complicated than that. Life isn't just about making sure that you never pay a cent of interest to a lender. Sometimes the price of debt is worth paying because you need a car to get to work, or you have to borrow money to visit a dying relative. Because life isn't as simple as fitting into easy rules. And we'd love it if our spiritual lives could be simple too. And in some ways it certainly is. You know, Jesus, good. Devil, bad. Right? That's not complicated. Sin, bad. Reading the Bible, good. But in other ways, we're required to find a balance between two opposite extremes. Mark chapter 8 contains two warnings for us as followers of Jesus, and they represent exactly this sort of tension. Jesus is warning us to keep to that straight and narrow path where knowledge and action intersect but don't cause trouble. I, um, I had a pastor who used to use the expression, for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch, which he was using that expression wrong. That expression is about the work that you don't see to do the things that you want to. But, but it's useful in that for everything that you're trying to do, there are usually two extremes that are both bad. So it's a useful metaphor. And the first ditch that we must avoid comes in the first half of Mark 8. It's a warning against inaction and unbelief. The chapter begins with Jesus feeding the 4,000, which is not to be confused with the feeding of the 5,000, which Nathan spoke to us about last week. This is a separate event. But immediately following the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus and his disciples get into the boat in order to relocate to a new area of ministry. This has been his habit all throughout Mark's gospel, and this time they come to a region called Dalmanutha. I'm going to start reading from verse 11. We'll have the words on the screen for you. The Pharisees came and they began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Full disclosure, I love this part of the story. This might be my favorite little clip in the Bible because it's just so unexpected. I mean, when was the last time that you thought of Jesus as rolling his eyes and saying, what is with you people? Like that, that is what just happened. Jesus said, what is with you people, and got back in the boat and left. And I find that hilarious. But that's not the end of the story. Let's keep reading. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. 
And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? There's a scary but important warning here for us as Christians as we follow Jesus. It's so easy to have our vision distracted when things are not going as we expect or when unexpected difficulty arises. We often find ourselves wondering, God, where are you? How could you let this happen? Don't you care? Many people have their faith shipwrecked on the rocks of these questions. But the call to us as Jesus followers, as, people living of, as the people of God living in community with one another, is to remember how God has brought us through hard times in the past. The disciples couldn't realize that forgetting food wasn't a big deal, even though they'd just seen Jesus multiply the loaves. How many times do we go into a panic about, about money or a relationship or a decision about our future and forget all of the ways that God has brought us through similar situations in the past? This is a big one for churches. I was talking with Janet, who is an important part of our financial department, and she was telling me how she was going through the minutes of old elder board meetings. I mean old, like these, meeting, these minutes are from 20, 30, 40 years ago. I don't remember why she was going through them. But she told me that these minutes are full of many of the same worries that we have today. How will we make the budget? How can we encourage our people to give? How will we deal with the latest act of vandalism or breakdown in the building? And Janet said the most beautiful thing. She said that if God had wanted this church to close, he would have done it a long time ago. I thought this was so apt, so important for us to hear. I'm using the example of the church's financial situation, but I, I don't want you to mishear me. We're not in a financial panic, okay? God has been very good to us, and you, our congregation, have been faithful, and our church remains in God's favor in that regard. But how can we apply this lesson to your own life? What's the situation that you're worried about that's keeping you up at night? Can you think of a time when God brought you through something similar in the past? Or maybe it really is a new situation for you, but you can remember God bringing you through other hard things. The first part of Mark 8 is a reminder to us about the danger of inaction and unbelief, especially in situations where we should know better. This is an important lesson, but it's only half of what we're looking at today. The second extreme that we need to avoid comes from the second half of Mark chapter 8. In these verses, we find a warning against presumptive action, against assumption, and against believing that we have the answers to things that God hasn't revealed. Let's start reading at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Let's, let's not miss this moment. This is, perhaps it's not the climax of Mark's gospel, but it's certainly the first climax. 
This is the moment where the narrative turns, where Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem and the cross and the purpose for which he came into the world. This episode is elaborated upon in Matthew's gospel in chapter 16, verses 16 to 20. You'll probably recognize these words. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah or the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So this is a pretty good moment for Peter, right? Pretty good? Good moment? Let's read on. He, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Uh, I got to say, this is about the sternest rebuke that I can imagine Jesus giving someone. Like, Peter just got a strip torn off of him. And this immediately after the glowing response that Jesus gave to Peter's insights about Jesus' identity. Talk about emotional whiplash. So, what just happened? Peter had the right idea. Jesus told him so. He got the answer to the question right. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the coming King, the Redeemer, the Sanctifier, the Healer, the Waymaker, the Miracle Worker. But the problem is that Peter thought that he knew what that meant. And he held to those ideas even over when Jesus himself was telling him what it actually meant. Peter, like so many of God's people at the time, believed that Messiah would come as a conquering king to free the land of Israel from the tyranny of the Gentiles, in this case, the Roman Empire. That Jesus would establish an everlasting kingdom, crushing his enemies beneath the boots of his armies and redeeming God's chosen from their bondage. Those of us who have been following Jesus for some time will recognize that Jesus did many of those things, but not in the ways that Peter was expecting. Jesus continues till the end of the chapter, elaborating on how the common understanding was upside down and that he had come to set it right. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves Take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the end of the chapter. And this is heavy stuff. We could spend all day focused on the words of Jesus here, never mind the broader lesson being taught by this whole chapter. But I want to highlight this second lesson one more time. 
In the first half of Mark 8, we saw a warning against forgetting what we've seen, against not having faith when we should know better, about refusing to act when we've been given a clear direction. In the second part, in the second part of Mark 8, we get the warning against the opposite extreme. This is a warning against assumption, against brash action, a warning against thinking that we know better than God. I think the area where this is most obvious is in doctrinal disputes. You know, when Christians want to make statements about the way that things are, Christians pretty regularly want to make it seem as if God has laid a particular teaching out quite explicitly in the Bible, when the reality is that Christians of character and with good faith can and do regularly disagree about these things. The one that springs to mind immediately is around questions of the end times. But I think we can interpret this lesson broadly and learn to recognize which of our doctrines are the central, taught by God sort of teachings, and which are the ones that we've penciled in in between, in an effort to fill in the gaps of our understanding. I am not criticizing penciling in beliefs. I've got a few of my own that I could share. I'm criticizing raising those beliefs up to the level of those things explicitly and undeniably taught by the Bible. Sometimes we need to be humble enough to admit that we don't know and to be able to trust God with those things that are his to decide. Ultimately, this chapter gives us a lesson in obedience of how to avoid both extremes of inaction and inappropriate action, the ditches of both unbelief and assumption. As I said at the beginning, this is not an easy, simple lesson. Avoiding the two extremes that Mark 8 warns against is going to require careful attention and reflection but I have great faith that you're up to the task. For as followers of Christ, you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, and you are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this beautiful community that we have the privilege of being a part. Let us find this middle path, the straight and narrow road of faithful obedience that Jesus calls us to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of Mark, for the words of Jesus that it records. We pray, Lord, that we would be the disciples that you call us to be, that you would continue to shave off those rough edges around us, Lord, to shape us into the image of your Son, that we could serve you better, to love you more, to love the world around us, and to accomplish your purposes within it. Thank you, Lord, for the lesson today. We pray that you would put it deep in our hearts and that it would grow a fruit and reap a harvest 30, 60, and 100 times. In your name we pray, amen.